You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your ESV scripture journal, will you grab that and go with me to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one this morning. You'll find some Bibles on those tables in the back of the room and a few of those ESV scripture journals as well. You're welcome to take one of those so you can follow along with us today. Uh, The full text on which today's teaching is based is Colossians 3, verses 1 to 11. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 11. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words. The Apostle Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming." In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So today we we come to a transition point in the letter of Colossians. And this is a similar transition that we see in most of Paul's letters, usually around the halfway point, which is where we are today. Usually around the halfway point in his letters, he will transition from indicative to imperative, from theology to ethics, from belief to behavior, and always in that order, always belief first and then behavior, because for the Christian, our conduct is based on our convictions, firmly held beliefs about who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us. We live out of that. In the first two chapters of Colossians, this letter that we've been studying, in the first two chapters, Paul has been developing really one big theological idea, the preeminence of Christ. Christ surpasses all others. He is supreme. He is sufficient. He is all you need. You and I don't need Jesus plus something. We need Jesus, simply Jesus. I want us to review a few of the key verses that we've seen in the first two chapters of the letter where Paul's been making this big theological point of the preeminence of Christ. Think back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he wrote about Christ the creator, the sustainer, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
So what is the eternal, risen, reigning Jesus, what is he doing right now? He's holding the world together. He's holding your world together, your family, your life. He's the sustainer. Paul has also written about Christ, the redeemer, the reconciler, the debt eraser. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, his identity points us to his ministry. The one who is the God-man came to reconcile the broken relationship between the holy God and sinful humanity. And how does he reconcile? How does he restore the relationship? How does he bring peace? By the blood of his cross. And you remember that image that we looked at last week? Where Paul talks about Jesus being the dead eraser? Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you... You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, not some of them, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Do you remember the image here? It's a financial term Paul uses. It's a certificate of indebtedness, an IOU. The picture is of an IOU that we have written and given to God. God, I owe you perfect obedience, total allegiance. God is our creator. We owe him everything. But the record of our sins, that's conclusive evidence that we have not given God what we owe him. But God in his grace, he takes that certificate of indebtedness, he cancels it. How? By nailing it to the cross. That's what forgiveness means. Jesus is all of these things. He's the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the debt eraser. He is preeminent. He is supreme. He's all we need. And so Paul can say in the heart of this letter, as you receive Christ Jesus, walk in him. Never move on from Jesus. Remain rooted in him and built up in him. It's a call to Christ centered living in the rest of this letter chapters 3 and 4 belief to behavior remember Paul is going to give us various examples of Christ centered living what does it look like boots on the ground but the very first thing he wants to teach us today at the beginning of chapter 3 is that Christ centered living is holistic living Christ centered living is holistic living It involves the mental, the physical, and the social, or mind, body, and community. Let's think about each of those, one at a time. First, mind. Christ-centered living is holistic living, beginning with the mind. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, our passage for today. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So we have two imperatives here, two commands. They're both positive. The second one clarifies the first. The first command is, seek the things 
that are above. And then comes the clarification in verse 2. Set your minds on the things that are above. So seeking means thinking. Thinking about the things that are above. Now what are these things above, things below? Well, probably because at the end of chapter 2, we've just come out of that passage where Paul has been detailing the false teaching in Colossae. Probably the things on the earth or the things below here are those tenets of the false teaching. All the things that those philosophers were talking about. Paul is saying, don't listen to the lies here below. Focus instead on the truth that is above the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished for us. It's significant, I think, that Paul begins this part of the letter. It's all about behavior. He begins this part of the letter not by giving us a checklist of things to do. That's not where he takes us here in this passage, not at the first part of it anyways. Instead, he calls us to direct our thinking. Think in this direction not in that direction. And notice that you can't do both at the same time. He's calling for concentration. And concentration, as you've heard me say before, concentration is elimination. To think about the things above, we must not think about the things below. Paul is calling us to be deep and directed thinkers. We must avoid all of these either-ors, either head or heart, either thinking or feeling, either reason or faith, either mental labor or ministries of love. No. No, according to Colossians, thinking, engaging the mind, is a way of loving God and loving others, and serving God in this world. Do you remember what Jesus said when the Pharisee came to him? He said, hey, teacher, what is the great commandment? Like, if you could sum up all the commandments in just one, what's the most important one? What's the great commandment? And what did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Loving God involves the mind. And it involves all the mind. In other words, our thinking should be wholly engaged and focused on knowing God. Coming to know Him in a deeper way. You see, thinking deeply about God is one of the main ways we come to love God more and more. Our affection for God, yours and mine's, it can become dormant. It can sort of fall asleep. Thinking deeply about God awakens our affection for him awakens us to what he's doing in the world and our place in his plan there's this wonderful circle I know God I love God and you know what I want to know him better and as I know him better I love him even more and that love drives me back to knowing him deeper it's this endless and beautiful thing We must reject these either-ors. We must understand that thinking is part of loving God and others. So let me ask you, what have you been thinking about? What have you been reading? Studying? Where does your mind dwell? To what do you apply it? 
Do you know batting averages and football stats better than you know the Bible? What? It's a little too close to home, doesn't it? To what do you apply your mind? Christian living, Christ-centered living involves the mind. Now, in the next couple of verses, Paul gives us something important to help us ground all of this. He grounds these imperatives, these commands, in the reality of who we are in Christ. Verses 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is important because it helps us understand our motivation. Why is it that we're called to do this deep thinking that we just talked about? It's not to try to earn God's love. Paul says you're doing this. You're setting your mind on the things above. Why? Because you have died. That old person, that old way of life is gone. You are a new creation now. And with that comes a whole new way of thinking. That's why we set our minds on the things above. And then he goes on to say, your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now this is really interesting because it's the only time in the entire Bible that we have this precise language used of being hidden with Christ. What does Paul mean by this? To be with Christ is synonymous to being in Christ, which is one of his favorite ways of saying we're in relationship with Christ. It's really shorthand for that very thing. We're in relationship with Christ. But by adding the word hidden, you're hidden with Christ, it brings out this notion of safety, security. When you're hiding, you're in a safe place. You're protected from the threat. Paul wants us to understand that our identity in Christ, our relationship with Christ... We are forever secure in that. We are safe. We are His and always will be His. And that means this deep thinking, this thought work. It's not to earn God's love. We're already in that relationship with God and nothing can ever threaten that. We're called to live out that new identity. As a husband, as a husband studies his wife to learn her favorite flower, her favorite wine, her favorite weekend getaway. As he studies his wife, so we study God. It's not a studying to pass a test to earn love. No, it's studying within the context of an existing and secure relationship. Christ-centered living involves the mind. Set your mind on the things above. That's first. Second, Christ-centered living involves the body. Paul continues, verses 5 to 7, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. In this middle part of the passage, just like in the first part, we had two imperatives and they were both positive. Here in the middle part, we have two imperatives and they're both negative. The first one is put to death. Now that should strike you as strange because in the previous verses, what did Paul say about death? He used similar language. You have died, verse 3. You see that? You have died. Already happened. Dead as a doornail. But then what does he say here in verse 5? Put to death. So what the heck? Which one is it, Paul? Are we dead? 
Or are we called to put to death? And the answer, of course, is both. Both. What he's getting at here is the old man, the old type of person, is dead. He's in the ground. He's been buried, so leave him there. Leave him there. Don't go back to that old way of living. Don't go back to those old practices. You have a new way of living now. And that means many things. He fleshes out some of it here in this first vice list, this catalog of sinful behaviors. What are we to put to death? What are we to leave in the ground? This first list focuses on sexual sins. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, or lust, evil desires, and covetousness, which in this context probably refers to a desire for greater sexual experiences. Here we're beginning to see how the early Christians were unique. Some of the features that set them apart from their culture. One of them we've already noted throughout this letter. The main thing that set the Christians apart was their total exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. If you went out on the streets today and you asked a random person, do you believe in God? You would probably get one of three answers. Yes, no, or I don't know. But it's not as likely that the person would stop to ask you, well, what do you mean by God? Which deity are you referring to exactly? Even atheists today presume that there's only one God to doubt, right? But in the ancient world, that was not the case. Paul lived in a world full of gods, full of gods, and each god had his own portfolio. So if you were going to travel at sea, you might pray to Poseidon. If you needed some help with your love life, you might appeal to Aphrodite. If you were a member of a guild, you were a baker, you would reverence the patron, saint, the patron deity of that guild. It was like a, a cafeteria of all these Roman-era deities. And just like in any cafeteria, you didn't have to choose just one or just two. You could fill your plate with all of them. But the early Christians didn't think this way, and they didn't worship this way. They called on Jesus and Jesus alone. And that was so strange, so bizarre in the ancient world that many concluded that the Christians were atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods. That's the main way they were different. But the other way they were different is this calling to live out that exclusive allegiance to Christ. Again, when we think of religion today, we probably think of some kind of system of thought that that involves a behavioral dimension, right? You live out that religion in some way. But in the ancient world, again, that wasn't true. Christianity was different. It included ethics. It included behavior. The Christians lived differently, including the way they thought about and the way they had sex. The Christian view of sex, let me try to just make this as concise as I can, but help you perhaps see something that you've not seen before. The Christian view of sex is very unique, even in our modern world today. I think most people would agree with that. Why is it so unique? Why is it so different? Paul is calling here for the avoidance of what he calls sexual immorality. Now, in the Greek text, that's the word porneia. You can hear in that our English word pornography. Porneia is a junk drawer term. It refers to any type of sexual activity outside the context of marriage. One man and one woman committed to each other for life. That is the context, God says, 
for sex, and there is no other. Now, why would God say that? It's because he has such a high view of sex. This is what most people don't understand about Christianity. It's because God has such a high view of sex. As the creator of sex, he knows how powerful a thing it is. He knows the power of it. Another way to say this is that the Christian understanding of sex is holistic. In keeping with our major theme of the day, it's holistic. There's an integrity to it. The Christian sexual ethic is this. Don't commit your body to someone unless you're ready to commit everything. Unless you're ready to commit your finances, your life, your all. Don't join with someone physically unless you're ready to join with them emotionally, financially, and in every way possible. There's an integrity to the Christian sexual ethic. God knows the power of it. Sex is not a bad thing. God created it. If you're a young person and you just feel like, man, I have this this drive for sex, understand that's a good thing. God made you that way. He gave us that drive, and men especially, to ensure the continuation of the human race until his plan for the world is complete. That drive is good, but also understand that God has given you that to drive you toward marriage. The one context that he has created for this sexual relationship. And so he can call Christians to put to death all of these vices that have to do with our sexual practices. Then he goes on and he gives us a second vice list in verses 8 to 10. But now you must put them all away. And he changes the image here from death to the stripping off of old dirty clothes. So if you think about the old life as dead, I'm a new creation now, I'm a new person now, and I need a new wardrobe. I need the dress, look, live differently now that I have this new life. And so that means putting away, stripping off now, not sins of the body, but sins of the mouth. The second vice list has to do with our words. Anger and wrath, malice and slander, obscene talk, lying, all of these things should not characterize this new life that we have in Christ. Christ-centered living means that our minds matter, our bodies matter, our words matter. So let's pause for a minute. We need to get personal with some application points here. Thinking about these vice lists, let me ask you, have you put to death porneia? Any and all sexual activity, mental, physical, outside of that context of marriage. One man, one woman, committed to each other, committed wholly to each other for life. Like I said before, sex is a good thing in the context for which God created it. Like fire in the fireplace. Keep the fire in the fireplace, it's a great thing. Take the fire to the forest, it becomes destructive. If you commit your body to someone without committing financially, emotionally, in every possible way... Eventually, that will bring pain and destruction. So have you put to death porneia? Now, secondly, let me ask you about your words. How have you been using them? Paul is calling for a very specific type of speech here, not the type that harms others. Words also are powerful. They have the power to bring healing to a conflict. When you hear people arguing... You can walk up to that argument, and with your words, you can pour water on that, or you can pour gasoline on it. It's up to you. 
It's all about the words you use. Words have power. How have you been using yours? James, in his letter, he says that we're to be slow to speak, slow to anger. Have you been quick to speak and quick to anger lately? And if so, perhaps there's someone you need to seek out. Perhaps a confession you need to make to God and to that person you wounded with your words. Now, one more point of application here. If we put these two vice lists together, if we bring together these themes of sex and harmful speech, anger, I want to ask you, how do you interact with people who hold a different view from you when it comes to gender and sexuality? How do you interact with them? Do you respond with both truth and love? Or have you sacrificed one of those? If you sacrifice truth, you'll find that you look just like the culture. You'll agree with the culture. If you sacrifice love, you'll become disagreeable. You'll never be able to have a loving conversation with anyone who holds a different view than you. We as Christians are people who preach grace, right? Our preaching of grace will fall on deaf ears if our daily interaction with people is graceless. We need both truth and love. We need both conviction and compassion. Christ in our living involves the mind, the body, words, and finally here at the end of the passage, community. It involves community. Look at the final verse, 11. Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. As he thinks about community here at the end of our passage, Paul emphasizes the inclusiveness of this community. He gives us eight designations here. Almost all of them are grouped together in pairs that are contrastive pairs. So that makes sense. But the two odd men out, the two that are different, are the barbarian and the Scythian. This is not a contrastive pair. This seems to be an intensification. Let me show you what I mean. Barbarian was a term that Greek speakers used to refer to non-Greek speakers. Their speech sounded like bar, 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 bar. Barbarian. Today we would say blah, 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 right? So it it brings out this idea of, you know, they're not educated. They're not cultured. They're not like us. That was the barbarians. The most extreme example of a barbarian was a Scythian. In the ancient world, the Scythian was the epitome of being unrefined, low class, no education, savage. That's what a Scythian was. So what is Paul getting at here? He's saying in this community called the church, in this Christ-centered community, society's worst is welcome. They're welcome here. And not only that, but they're part of our team. We're together. Throughout this passage, remember Paul has been changing that main metaphor from first it was the death of the old way of living. The old man has died. And then he brings in this idea of putting on a a new wardrobe. The old man has died, the new man lives, and the new man needs a new wardrobe. Well, now at the end of the passage, think of that wardrobe as a uniform. 
a uniform. What does a uniform do? What does it mean? A school uniform, an athletic uniform, a military uniform? What does it mean? It means that I am part of something greater than myself. It means that I am not alone. We are together. It brings a sense of belonging. And that's what Paul's getting at here at the end of the passage. Everyone, no matter what your background, your culture, your gender, your age, whatever, the gospel brings all people together because Christ is all. Harking back to everything we've learned so far in this letter, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the redeemer, he is all, and he is in all. Meaning by the power of his spirit, he indwells all types of people. Anyone who looks to him with faith, even the Scythian, even society's worst. Friend, whoever you are and whatever you've done, God loves you. And you too can become a part of this community, the Christian community, by looking to Jesus Christ and placing your faith in him. If you've never done that, why not do it today? Look to him today. Now, I want to wrap up this way. I want to circle back just for a moment to the idea of the mind. It is significant that Paul begins this part of the letter that deals with Christian behavior, not by giving us a task list, but by directing our thinking. Think in this direction, not that one. Thinking is important, and we take that seriously here at Faith Church. In fact, we're developing a curriculum to help people of every age and stage of life become better thinkers, deeper thinkers in the things that are above, focusing on Jesus. I want to give you one opportunity that's coming up in the weeks ahead. Next Wednesday night, we'll be finishing our confirmation class, which is an opportunity for deeper thinking for our preteens. We'll also be finishing up the first part of our resilient discipleship class, which is an opportunity for deeper thinking for our high school juniors and seniors. The week after that, or two weeks after that, October the 11th, write down that date, October the 11th, will be the kickoff of our Fall Faith Core class. Faith Core is a sequence of classes that we're developing. It'll take you about three or four years to go through all of them. But it's designed for every adult in the church or in our community. Every age and stage of life is welcome to come. Think of this as seminary on a stick. Let me show you the scope of topics or classes that we hope to cover in the faith core sequence. You're going to learn about apologetics. What are some of the common objections to Christianity and how do I defend against them? Systematic theology. What do I believe and why do I believe it? Why do I believe that? Why do I believe this? Christian history. What are some of the most important events from church history and why do they matter today? What can we learn from them for the church today? Old Testament and New Testament survey. A book-by-book introduction to all of the Old Testament books and then all of the New Testament books. Spiritual disciplines. How do I grow in my relationship with Christ? Personal evangelism. How do I share the gospel with my friends, my family workers, my family members, my co-workers? And then finally, studying and teaching the Bible. How do I become a better student of God's Word? And how do I begin to share the treasures of God's Word with others? This is the curriculum we're developing. It's available to you. 
October the 11th, we're going to begin a class called Reformed Theology. It fits within this second bucket here. But again, if you take all of these, it's going to take you about three or four years to go, all, go through all of these classes, which is why we're calling it Seminary on a Stick. On a stick. doesn't cost you a dime. It's going to be on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7 p.m. Classes will be between 6 and 10 weeks long. And then we'll move on to the next one. So you can expect in the spring to see something from this next category. This is an opportunity for you to direct your thinking. Direct your thinking. Which direction have you been thinking in? What have you been reading, studying, applying your mind to? The the call from God's word this morning is clear. Set your mind on the things above. So here's an opportunity to do just that. Sign up for the Faith Core class, October the 11th. We'll stop there today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this call to be deeper thinkers, to love you, God, with our whole minds, and to love you with our whole bodies. God, I suspect there are some of us who are struggling with different things this morning. Some are struggling with sexual sin. By the power of your spirit, free them from that this morning, I pray. Help them to put to death porneia, that sexual sin that they're struggling with. Others perhaps are struggling to control the tongue, their words. Our words have the power to bring healing and the power to bring such profound hurt. By the power of your Spirit, help us to be slow to speak, slow to anger. Perhaps there are some this morning who struggle with this idea of the Scythian, that even society's worst could be welcome here. Oh God, by the power of your Spirit, give them a deeper understanding of the gospel. That all types of people meet together under the cross where we find forgiveness. Forgiveness of all our sins. God, as you work the gospel deeper into our hearts this morning, we pray the result of that would be a different way of thinking and a different way of living. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.